know, I was sitting on the plane last night, flying in from LaGuardia back to Boston, uh, about 8 o'clock or so, and 25-year-old, mid-20s guy was sitting next to me, and his, his, his fingers were just flying over his iPad. He was playing some kind of a game and tilting it and directing it and everything, and it just really struck me that in many ways, our, the younger generation today, they, they, they hone their fine motor skills on, like, the controllers for the games, right? You, you ever watch them, like, doing, fingers are flying, and, 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 and I get on there, it's like, right? all I can hit is the wall, you know? Just, but, you know, when I was a kid, we honed our fine motor skills a different way. Guys, remember back before we had digital radios? You know, we had that little line that went up and down your, your radio screen, you know? And, and I had this 1974 Mercury Comet, you know? And what a fine vehicle that was. By the time I got done, the, the, the vinyl roof was peeling. It looked like a snake shedding its skin, you know? It was down in Texas. We didn't have air conditioning. It was awful. Anyways, but I can remember many times leaning out over the wheel with your hand on the dial, and you're, you're trying to get that radio station to come in, you know? There's stations on both sides of it, or it moves around a little bit because you gone further away from the station, and you're trying to get it in, there's trying to get all the static out so you can hear it clearly, you know? And, um, you know, that, that thought jumped in, into my mind this week when I was reading this passage. One of the struggles we frequently have is our ability to really hear from God. And how is it that we can really dial in and be able to clearly hear from God? Now, we're going to look today at three chapters from the book of 1 Samuel. We, for those of you just kind of jumping in with us, we've been working through a series here for a number of weeks out of the book of 1 Samuel entitled Journey to the Throne. I apologize, I don't have a sermon outline for you today, but I didn't get home until 9.30 last night, so that's uh, my excuse for today. But um, we've been trying to glean for ourselves lots of spiritual life lessons on our journey to God's throne by what the people of God learned and did as a part of their journey to having a throne that by the beginning of chapter, by the beginning of 2 Samuel is going to be occupied by King David. And there, there are several things that transpire in these, in these chapters, and I don't have time to read it all, so I'm going to try to recap those from you. But I think as we look at these experiences in the life of Saul, in the life of David, we're going to be able to see some things that Saul did that, that interrupted, that conflicted with, that created static, if you will, in his ability to be able to tune his spiritual radio to God's frequency, and the things that David did to promote that, okay? Now, if you have your Bibles, I'd love for you to turn with me to 1 Samuel. If you're using one of our Pew Bibles, page, we're on page 245 today. We're going to look at and over onto 246 and 247. Let me just kind of run through the general things that happen because I don't have time to read it all, and I'll go back and read sections. Now, when we first last left 1 Samuel, it had finally become clear to Jonathan, who is the son of King Saul, and to David, who's been anointed to be the next king, that King Saul is committed to killing David. So after communicating that to David, David flees. Jonathan meets him in the field, shares with him what's going on, says, you're definitely in danger, you need to go, and, and David flees. He doesn't take anything with him. No food, no weapons, no nothing. So the first thing he does is he travels about three miles to a little uh, 
village by the name of Nob, which was a which was a sacred point. It was a place where there was a worship shrine shrine there. And so it was a center of worship for the Israelites. And there were a number of priests who were serving there. And he goes to the lead priest, his name is Elimelech, and he asks him for food. He said, the king sent me on an urgent business. And David's referring to the king, the eternal king, even though Elimelech would have understood that he was talking about King Saul. He said, the king has sent me on an urgent business. I didn't even have time to make preparations, so I need some food. Give me some food. And also, I don't have a weapon. And so he said, well, the only food we have is a consecrated food. We're going to come back to that. And the only weapon I have here is the one that you placed here when you killed Goliath. And that's wrapped up safely in the back. And so David takes the five loaves, and he takes the sword, and he moves on. And the only place he thinks he can find safety is among their enemies. So he travels to Gath, one of the five cities that dominated the nation of the Philistines, and he thinks he can slip in unnoticed, unrecognized, and somehow kind of blend into the court and bide his time there, but that doesn't work. When he shows up, they recognize who he is, and they start saying, hey, you know, this is, isn't this the king, the one who's going to be the future king, and they sing about him, he's killed his 10,000s, and him only, that kind of, and David is fearful for his life. So he acts like he's lost his mind. He, he starts to just kind of like gouge at the doors and put kind of right on the, all the big, huge doors that are around the, 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 the walled city. And, he, and, he, and, he, and, and the beard was a very prized, manly possession. And he, he just literally just lets saliva run out of his mouth down his beard. And he just brings disgrace to himself. And the, and the king of Gaza, he's, no, he's lost his mind. Do I need any other insane people in my household? Absolutely not. And so they let David go and he escapes. From there, some folks begin to associate with David, and he, and he moves, including his family, who flee for their lives because they think that King Saul will come after them since he can't find David. So they flee to David. He takes his family to Moab, and he leaves his family with the king of Moab. Now, if you remember, David's lineage has some Moabite blood in it because one of his great-grandparents is Ruth who was a Moabitess. And so he takes his parents and he deposits them in a city where they can live as elderly people inside of the, the village instead of out in the hills. And he leaves his family there, but then eventually he withdraws to Judah, and we'll get back to that as well. In the meantime, Saul is losing his mind. He's just paranoid. He believes that everybody that's in his court is against him. None of you will tell me where David is. All of you, you're all with him. David's lying away. He's going to come. And he's just going nuts. And so in the midst of that, there is an Edomite by the name of Doeg who had probably been captured and taken into captivity through some of the Israelites' victories over the Edomites. He's been taken, and he's a servant of Saul's court. And he says, you know, I saw David at Nob, and I saw him talking to the priest Elimelech. And you know what? And he gave him food. He gave him a sword. He inquired of the Lord for him. So Saul, in his paranoia, orders all of the priests from Nob to come to his court. And when he gets there, he accuses Elimelech and all the priests of treason, that they aided and abetted the enemy, who was, King, who was David. And, and so he orders all of them to be executed, every single one of the priests. And his guards refuse. Now, this is the second time in the book of 1 Samuel, that an order of the king has been refused. 
Earlier, the order was given to execute Jonathan because he had eaten food in the midst of the battle that they were having and, and where King Saul had said, nobody eats until the battle is over and Jonathan had eaten and so Saul said, surely you must die and, and the people said, uh-uh, we're not doing this. And Saul's life, Jonathan's life was spared. Here you see the same thing happening again. The people are looking at Saul and saying, you're nuts. These guys have not done anything right, wrong. David is the anointed one. And, and you're ordering for us, we're, we're not going to do that. So he turns to Doeg, the Edomite, who kills all 85 of these guys. Hacks them down. And then he goes out to Nob, the little village, and he kills everybody else who's left. The rest of the men, the rest of the women, all the children, all the animals. It's interesting that in the pursuit of his own goals, Saul was willing to do what he was not willing to do when God ordered him to do that. Earlier in the book of 1 Samuel, God had ordered him to go and bring judgment on the Amalekites and to kill everyone and everything. And Saul had refused to do that. But here in the pursuit of his own goals, he's willing to go to any lengths, but he wouldn't do so in his obedience to God. The story's not over there. In chapter 23, we get the Philistines come in to attack a small city in the very southern edges of Judah, a city by the name of Keilah. So if you think about it, the Philistine area had kind of like grown right around, and you had this little finger of Judah that stuck out, and this is where the city is. And they're getting attacked by the Philistines. And David, is a, he's from Judah, and, he said, and so he asks of God, should I go and help deliver them? Should I take my 600 men and rescue the city? And God tells him, yes. He doesn't have a priest with him yet. Abiathar is going to get there in, in the next scene. But at this point, he doesn't have everybody with him. He goes before God and he says, should we attack? And he says, yes. He goes back to his men and he says, I've inquired of the Lord. He says we should go. And they're thinking about this. You know, if we go in, we're going to be surrounded on three sides by the Philistines. And if Saul comes around the backside, we, we, we are. We're in, we're in big heap of trouble. And they're thinking, you sure you heard God right? You know, this is the first time you've really done this. Inquired of God, God, I think. And David said, well, let, let me go back and check. David goes back and he asks and inquires of God again. And God said, absolutely, I'm going, to give you, I'm going to give the Philistines into your hand. And he goes and he attacks and he delivers the city. Saul finds out about it. He says, you know what? God has given David into my hand because now he's in this walled city. He's got no place to go. The Philistines all around him. I'm going to come in and kind of be the cork on the backside and he's going to be surrounded and, and we're going to put an end to David. But God reveals this to David and David is able to slip out with his men to safety. But Saul, at this point, continues to seek for David, and all he has to rely on is man-made intelligence. David continues to have divine intelligence. All Saul has is man-made intelligence. And in particular, there's these guys by the name of, who come from the city of Ziph. They're referred to as Ziphites. How would you like to be from Ziph? You know, that'd be a, you know but anyways, we don't even know where it is. I mean, we have no idea exactly where it is. No, no ongoing archaeological, archaeological record or any of those kinds of things. But these guys come up, they're courting favor with the king, and they say, we know where David is. David's hanging out in our neighborhood. We can tell you his ways, where he goes, that, that, that kind of stuff. What coffee shop he stops at in the morning. We can tell you how to get this guy. And they say, you know what? And Saul says, blessed you be of God, because you've had compassion in me. And he goes down and he tries to attack him. David um, withdraws. 
And just at the moment when Saul is about ready to overtake David, a situation that David did not want to take place because he did not want civil war among the people of God. He did not want to attack the Lord's anointed being King Saul. So he's withdrawing. And just about when Saul is about ready to overtake him, God brings the Philistines into the land, forces Saul to retreat to protect his nation, and David escapes. So that's the story in chapters 21, 22, and 23. And good stuff. If you're not reading along, you're really missing out. I encourage you to do that. We're moving along a couple, three chapters at a time now, just drawing out some thoughts as we go and trying to wrap up the, um, by the end of the month here in the book of 1 Samuel. Um, I want to look at Saul's life, what's going on here in these passages, and I want to draw some insights for us about what... what um, what's the word I'm looking for? What injects spiritual static into our communication with God? What kind of things is it that we do that makes it where it's almost impossible to hear from God? Where the, where the, the station gets just a little out of whack, you know, and, and, and we just can't get the message from God anymore. We, I think you can see several things from Saul's life that caused the situation, created enough spiritual static in his life that he was no longer able to hear from God and therefore only had to rely on what he could get from men. And So let me give you three things. Perhaps these relate to your own experience. You see some connection. The very first thing that Saul did that we can see in these texts is that he eliminated all the spiritual voices in his life. He, he's... He's already driven away Samuel, right? Samuel's a great prophet, got the insight of God, etc. He can speak directly. He's already driven him away. Samuel won't have anything else to do with him. Never going to see Saul again. All Samuel has got left, all, all David is, sorry, all Saul has left, get that right, all Saul has left are the priests. Pick up the story with me in verse 11 of chapter 22. He's heard from this Doeg the Edomite who happened to be at Nob the day that David was there. He's heard that Elimelech and the priests helped David. So he calls them down and we pick up the story in verse 11. The king sent messengers to summon Elimelech and the priest, the, priest, the son of Ahitub, and his father's whole family who were priests in Nob. And all of them came to the king and calls Samuel. Saul says to him, well, listen up. He says, he says I'm at your service, Lord. The response that Elimelech gives is, listen, I, I'm faithful to you. I will serve you. I am one of your loyal subjects. He said, well, why did you and Jesse's son conspire against me? He's referring to David. He won't even use his name. You gave him bread and a sword and inquired of God for him so he could rise up against me and wait in ambush, as is the case today. Now, you notice that Doeg, if you had read through the early parts of chapter 2, he didn't say anything about the fact that Elimelech was a little cautious about the whole thing, unsure, it seemed a little out of whack. He didn't, he didn't communicate anything. He said, you know, this guy helped him. You know, that's all he said. And Elimelech replies to the king, says, who among all your servants is as faithful as David? He's the king's son-in-law, captain of the guard, of your bodyguard, and honored in your house. In other words, he said, why in the world wouldn't I help him? I thought helping him was serving you because he's your, he's your son-in-law. He's the captain of your bodyguard. He's the most faithful servant you got. Why wouldn't I help him? So he said, why was, it, was today the first time I inquired of him? Absolutely not. So please 
Don't let the king make any accusation against your servant or any of my father's household, for your servant didn't have any idea about any of this. And the king says, you will die. I will elect you and your father's family. So he gives the order to kill all of them. And we see at the end of verse 17 that all the king's servants refused. But in verse 18, so the king said to Doeg, go and execute the priests. So Doeg the Edomite went and executed the priests himself. On that day, he killed 85 men who wore linen ephods. That's, that's what was the garment of the priest. It was understood that you can only really inquire and hear from God when you were wearing the linen ephods. And so he kills all of the guys who were entitled to read that. And then he goes and he strikes down the, the whole village of Nob, all of the city, the city of the priests. And so basically what Saul's done, he's taken the only people left who can speak God's voice into his life, and he slaughtered them all. He's just eliminated all the spiritual community around him. If you want to introduce spiritual static into your conversation with God, just withdraw from the spiritual community. Just, just withdraw from Christian worship. Just withdraw from God's word. Just withdraw from fellowship with God's people. You can get to a place where you can hear anything, but you're not necessarily going to hear the voice of God anymore because God works and speaks through the Christian fellowship that we have, through the connection with God's people. So if you want to introduce spiritual static into your life, just stop associating with the people of God who are seeking and listening and faithfully trying to understand what God is saying to them. You'll have all the spiritual static you can handle. What's the second thing you could do? You know, there's a very interesting encounter that occurs in chapter 23, verses 15 through 18. David, again, we're jumping around these chapters. David is on the run. He's trying to run from... from um, from Saul, Saul chasing him in the, out in the wilderness and out in the mountains and etc. And in the midst of that chase, Saul's son Jonathan comes to him. Let me read just verses 15 through 18 of chapter 23. He says, Now David was in the wilderness of Ziph in Horesh when he saw that Saul had come out to take his life. Then Saul's son Jonathan came to David in Horesh and encouraged him in his faith in God, saying, Don't be afraid, for my father Saul will never lay a hand on you. You yourself will be king over Israel, and I'll be your second in command. Even my father knows that this is true. So here's, here's what's going on. Jonathan, I mean, he's, his, he's the son of the king, right? He, he's on the inside. He knows what the thoughts of his father are. are. And, and basically what he's saying, my father knows that God's going to make you the next king, but he's rejected that, and he's fighting it anyways. You want to introduce spiritual static into your conversation with God? Just, just, eat, just be in a position where you know what it is that God wants you to do and just reject it anyways. When you know what's right in the eyes of God and you choose not to do it, the spiritual static comes. You just can't hear from God the same way you did before. Now, sometimes that's when we take the truth of God, whether the, the fundamental truth that he's taught us, or sometimes it's the sense that we have of the will of God for our lives, and we just reject it. So it can run the gamut from the practice of being faithful to what the Bible teaches about uh, the sexual ethic for our lives, to all the way to re refusing to go on a mission trip because we just don't want to go or we don't want to have to take showers with cold water. You know, it can run the gamut. When you know what it is that God wants you to do and you reject it anyways, 
the spiritual static comes into your life. It could relate to our giving, to encouraging, our, in loving our spouse and forgiving people, being compassionate. You could take the list right on down. But when you and I know what's right to do and reject it anyways, it introduces spiritual static into our conversation with God, a static that in many ways is tough to get by. I remember when I was in Rwanda the very first time, I, I may have told this story before, but I was teaching this, you know, back in 2011, we were teaching the pastors for the first time. The second day, we're working our way through the book of Matthew, and, and I get to a place where I ask, about, you know, do you believe in miracles? Do you, have you seen God doing miracles in, in Rwanda? And this one pastor jumps up in the back. He's a real animated guy, and he starts talking really fast and loud and waving his arms around, and it's all being interpreted to me. And, you know, he says, well, yeah, 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 I've seen a miracle in my life, whatever, you know. And he said, my baby boy, just a few months old, got hit in the head with a door. He was lying on the floor, got hit in the head in the door, and he was unconscious, and I took him to one clinic, and they said, there's nothing we can do for him, he's going to die. And took him to another clinic, they said the same thing, and he hailed like, got, like a, 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 got on the bus and started taking him to the bigger city and that kind of stuff, and he said, he said and, and I just realized that God wasn't hearing my prayer because I needed to repent from, for beating my wife. I'm thinking, whoa, whoa, what was that? You know, and he said, well, he blamed his wife for his child getting hurt, so he just beat her. You know, and, but he got, he, he, you know, you can have a lot of conversation about that, but the principle, he got the principle. He knew what was right in the eyes of God. He rejected it anyways, and it had interrupted his conversation with God, and it was blocking his prayer, as well as his ability to hear from God. That happens in our lives when you and I know what's right in the eyes of God and just reject it anyways. One last aspect I want you to see. When you and I adopt a warped spiritual perspective. It begins to hinder, introduce static into our ability to hear from God. Well, what in the world do you mean? What's this twisted spiritual perspective? Can I, can I just give you a couple of illustrations from the text? In chapter 23, beginning of the chapter, we, we, we see that God instructs David to go to the city of Keilah and deliver it from the hands of the Philistines, right? This is the intent of God, is to go and to redeem the city from the Philistines, if you will. Look how Saul understands it in verse 7 of chapter 23. David's going at the, at the, at the instruction with the leadership of God to protect the people of God. This is how Saul sees it. God's handing them over to me. You see that? He says, when it was reported to Saul that David had gone to Keilah, he said, God has handed him over to me, for he's trapped himself by entering a town with barred gates. He, he, he's adopted this twisted perception on spiritual reality. God's seeking to deliver the city, but somehow in all, Paul, Saul sees it as though God's trying to deliver David into his hands when he already knows that God intends for him to be the next king. Follow the story just a little bit more. When you get down to chapter 23, verse 21, these, these Ziphites come to him. They offer more information on how to find David and et cetera. And this is what Saul says to him. says, may, the, may you be blessed by the Lord. He, he's now actually in a position where he's giving thanks. He's blessing people who are helping him be disobedient to God's will in the situation. We, we get to places like that sometimes. When we, we look at circumstances and, and, and we say, well, you know, and, and, and that 
we, we see it as though God is somehow or another supportive of or blessing us or protecting us in the midst of our sin. And we think we can go on with it. And when we're in a position like that, the, the, the spiritual static just makes it impossible for us to hear from God. I, I tell you, the most dramatic and, and experience I've ever had with this was when I was pastoring down in Hanover. I was walking, working with a, a family. The, the, the mother had started coming to our church. She was... She, she was genuinely seeking the Lord, came from a very troubled situation. She had several young adult children who were struggling significantly with drugs. And, and I was meeting with one of the, her son one day. And I was talking to him about his relationship with God. And he says, oh, no, 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 I'm great with God. He says, God, God, has, God has helped me slip away from the cops on a number of occasions when I've been buying heroin. So God's, God's taking care of me. I'm thinking, what in the world is this guy thinking? You know, the, the, the evil one is allowing him to stay entrapped in the sin, and somehow or another he's seeing that as God protecting him in the midst of his sin. We, we can get into those positions. And, and, and the list could just go. You, you can start making application and application. There's many times when all of us have faced situations where we have justified our rebellion against God and then somehow or another seen God's affirmation of that rebellion. And it blocks our ability to really hear from God. Can we get on a positive note to end? Would that be all right? What about David? David's got this crystal clear. It's like he's got this divine crystal ball, you know? He can always see what's going to happen. He asks God, well, should I go attack Keilah? We're going to be victorious. Yeah, you should go. You sure? Yeah, you should definitely go. He gets there, and then when Saul starts to come, and he says, you know, now Abiathar, the lone surviving priest from the city of Nob, is with him. He says, can you go inquire of God? If we stay here in the city... Are they going to turn us over to Saul? And he goes and quiet, yeah, they're going to turn you over. He said, well, I think we ought to get out of here. And he gets this guidance from God. You know, the word just goes on and on. I want to show you an interesting experience. If you have your Bibles, turn back to chapter 22. This is when David is in, David is in Moab. And there's a guy with him that we learn read about in verse 5. It says, then the prophet Gad said to David, don't stay in the stronghold, which was located in Moab. They told you David had deposited his parents in the capital of Moab, and he withdrawn to a stronghold still in Moab, and so he's in a place of protection and hiding. And he said, and the prophet says to him, leave and return to the land of Judah. So David left and went to the, to the forest of Hereth. This prophet Gad was to stay with David all throughout his kingship. In fact, the last time we hear about the prophet Gad is when he's at the dedication of the temple under Solomon. David established and kept a voice of God in his life through all of his kingship. When Abiathar, the, the son of Elimelech, comes to him, he gives him his permanent protection. So he has a priest, somebody who is in a position to put on the linen ephod and go before God and inquire of God. He brings him into his court and he keeps him there. David keeps people in his orbit who can speak the voice of God into his life. If you want to hear from God, keep people like that in your life. Keep those kind of people in your life. Those are the ones that are going to help you be people who are going to be able to get this crystal clear reception 
from God. It's the second thing I want you to see. In chapter 21, David's fleeing, you know, for the first time, and, and, and he doesn't have any food with him. And so he goes to this little priestly city where there's a shrine, a place of worship, and he goes, and in verse 4, he, and he asks the, the priest for food and for a weapon. And the priest says this in verse 4, 21, chapter 21, verse 4. He says, this, there is no ordinary bread. We, we just don't have any bread to give you that's just off the street kind of bread. But what we have is the consecrated bread. But the young men may eat it only if they have kept themselves from women. And David answers, I swear that women are being kept from us as always when we go out to battle. The young men's bodies are consecrated even on an ordinary mission. So even more so are they consecrated today. So here's the dynamic going on. Every day they made 12 loaves of bread and they brought them before into the tabernacle and set them on the table before the Lord, each loaf representing one of the, na- one of the tribes of Israel. They would take the other 12 loaves that were there from the day before, they would take them out, and those could only be eaten generally by the Levitical priests, by those who were consecrated and right before God. This priest, Elimelech, says to David, hey, listen, we don't have any ordinary bread. All we got is a consecrated bread. Your guys, your men, including yourself, you're not in a position to eat this unless you have been, if you consecrated yourself to God, you're set apart to God. And notice David's response. He says, we do this on ordinary missions, not just on these big missions, but we do this on ordinary missions. They're always ready to be used of God. Now, the implication here is that is not to be that when you have sex with your spouse that you somehow become unclean. What they're talking about here is this idea that these guys were on a divine mission and as a part of their being set apart, as a part of their fasting and being ready for God to use, they had, they, they had suspended, if you will, their interactions with their spouses and, and, and we see this come up later when, when David brings Uriah back to try to go back to his wife Bathsheba, and he refuses because he's set aside, he's supposed to be available for the battle, that kind of stuff. A whole dynamic's going on. David's point is, he's, he's always ready. He's always set aside for God. You, you, if you want to hear from God, don't, don't take spiritual vacations. What I mean by that is vacations from your spiritual life. Just say, well, you know what? I'm just going to set this apart for the next four weeks or six weeks or eight weeks or whatever. Don't do that kind of stuff. Be ready. Stay ready. Always be in a position where you understand that God can use you in a moment's notice. And when you and I keep ourselves in a place where we are spiritually ready, we're spiritually up to date, we're spiritually in, in the current moment, We keep the channels of God's communication into our lives wide open, and that voice can become crystal clear to us. One last truth. Do what's right in the eyes of God, even if it seems unwise. You know, I I mentioned just a a moment ago David's interaction with this prophet of Gad. This prophet speaks to David, says, you know, listen, don't stay in the stronghold. Don't stay here in Moab. Go back to Judah. Now, if you're in David's shoes, this is what you'd say to him. Listen, all right, I got Moabite blood in my, in my, running through my veins, right? Part of my grandparent, Moabite. I can stay here. This is much safer than going back to Judah. We got no place to hide in Judah. Saul's looking for us in Judah. Why in the world would I go back there when he's got the entire army that can wipe out me and my 600 men? Why would we go back? And the prophet's dad saying, you need to go back because the Lord has said so. Why is the Lord saying so? Because back in Deuteronomy, The book of Deuteronomy, God had forbid that the people of Israel should enter into any friendly alliances with the Moabites. 
because of the way that they had hindered their progression into the promised land. So to be in this friendly relationship with the Moabites, especially as the next king of Israel, was a violation of God's law. And he said, you can't stay here. You need to go. And David does what's right in the eyes of God, even though it put him and his men at risk. And when you and I are in a position where we're ready to obey, even when we don't understand it all, the reception of God's voice into our lives becomes crystal clear. Our time's running out. So let me just, let me just conclude this way. First of all, some of you say, you know, I'm not sure I've ever really heard from God. Let me tell you, my suspicion is that the first thing you're ever going to really hear from God is, that, is this. It's going to be something along the lines of, you need a Savior, and I've provided it in Jesus Christ. Responding to that voice and embracing Christ in your life is the thing that turns the radio on in the first place. The spiritual voice of God speaking to your life. But here's a question I'd really like for us all to struggle with today. is how well are you hearing God? How well are you hearing God? When was, when was the last time you got just a real clear sense of leadership from God? When, 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 when you, you just had a, a truth that just rang through to your heart and your mind and your soul and your spirit from the Word of God, how well are you hearing from God? And is there anything that you've heard today? Looking at the experiences of Saul and David. Saul who found himself in a position at the end where, where the only thing he had to rely on is what he could come up with on his own. Or David who was in a position to hear directly from God. Which end of those spectrums are you closer to today? Let's pray together. Father, we echo the prayer that's been offered before at the beginning of the book of 1 Samuel. When we say, speak, Lord, your servants are listening. In the name of Jesus.